Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I mean to plant a flag in the sand for conscious, willful people to gather, organize, empathize, and capsize the established order of things. Our opposition? Team Machine, Team Capitalism, Team Algorithm, Team No Team, I'm my own team. Being human is a team sport, so thanks for playing. Playing for Team Human today... One of my favorite people in the world, Suzanne Sloman, founder of Green Rabbit, a small solar-powered bakery in the Mad River Valley of Vermont, specializing in naturally leavened breads. It doesn't matter if you're the one doing the dishes, you know, or mopping the floors or driving the truck. That's an integral part of our business. Without you, it's a break in the chain of, of what it takes to make you know, the daily business run. Suzanne will be sharing with us what it's like to be a real person doing real things, an actual baker, farmer, employer, and global citizen, trying to operate as sustainably as humanly possible across all the dimensions of her work. It's time to celebrate the power of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I've been reading so much about Bitcoin lately and getting so many emails really Every day from somebody opening a blockchain token currency, either on Ethereum or on the Bitcoin blockchain. And I'm getting concerned that most of these folks don't actually understand what Bitcoin is or how it operates or what's going to happen as it moves forward. Bitcoin was a clever idea. It was idealistic even, but it isn't working out quite as its developers imagined. In fact, once all the coin has been mined, Bitcoin will simply reinforce the very banking system it was invented to disrupt. Now, watching the 
Bitcoin phenomenon is a bit like watching the three decade decline of the internet from a play space for the counterculture to a play space for venture capitalists. We all thought the net would break the economy of top-down corporate media. But as business interests took over, it's become primarily a delivery system for streaming television to consumers and consumer data to advertisers. Likewise, Bitcoin was intended to break the monopoly of the banking system over central currency and credit, but in the end, it's turning into just another platform for the big banks to do the same old extraction they always have. Okay, here's how. So at its core, Bitcoin is really just an extension of the old PGP, or Pretty Good Privacy Encryption Protocol. You remember those little keys you get at the end of your emails? Public and private keys were used to hide and verify the identity of the parties in a transaction. The transaction itself is authenticated by thousands of internet witnesses who then vote for its veracity with all the cycles of their computers and the electricity on which they run. So in return for dedicating all that hardware and all that wattage authenticating transactions and recording them in the ledger known as the blockchain, they're rewarded with Bitcoin. It's their verification activity that mines new Bitcoin into existence. And the more Bitcoin they have, the more committed they'll be to maintaining the integrity of the blockchain recording their assets. So in essence, nothing personal here, Bitcoin is money built and maintained by nerds, based on the premise that the good nerds will outnumber the bad nerds. So bad actors can dedicate all of their processing power to fake transactions, but hopefully anyway, they'll be outnumbered by those who want the token to work properly. So at its most idealistic, Bitcoin is meant to provide a decentralized, frictionless form of currency. Central bank-issued currency, as we've talked about a lot here, it's been a monopoly since the late Middle Ages, when local market monies that were optimized for transactions were all declared illegal and replaced with this expensive money that had to be borrowed from a central treasury at interest. See, the money people used up until then was virtually worthless. It was more like a poker chip or an IOU that was issued in the morning and then redeemed at the end of the day for a loaf of bread or a dozen eggs. You know, unlike gold, which was no good for transaction because it was too scarce, money markets existed only to enable trade, and they'd expire right at the end of the day, end of the month. They couldn't be stashed. So after market monies were outlawed, everyone who wanted to transact had to pay kings and their banks for the privilege of using coin of the realm. It was a terrible drain on the economy, and the rising merchant class of the late Middle Ages became peasants once again, incapable of transacting on their own. And that's the system we're stuck with today, with central banks issuing money and banking conglomerates lending it to the public and verifying our transactions for fees like Visa taking 3% for a fee. So Bitcoin meant to cut out those unnecessary intermediaries and then replace them with computer cycles, the high processing cost of mining Bitcoin, as well as an arbitrary limit on the total number of coins that could ever be mined, keeps the money supply scarce. But that means that instead of retrieving those high-velocity market monies of the Middle Ages, the ones that work like poker chips, 
Bitcoin's retrieving gold, a currency that invites hoarding and speculation while discouraging transactions. So this explains why Bitcoins become less a means of exchange than a speculative pyramid, as well as why the coin's developers and early investors have ended up billionaires. The wealth disparity in Bitcoin is worse than that of central currency, with 4% of users owning 96% of all Bitcoin. So much for breaking the banking monopoly. This is just hackers seizing the banking industry for themselves. The money itself, Bitcoin, is worthless. Less than worthless, in fact. We're spending massive amounts of machine cycles and electricity, burning fossil fuels for no reason other than to prove our commitment to the coin. It's not like we don't already have enough problems generating energy to operate our highly industrialized civilization. Now we're spending billions of dollars and millions of gallons of fossil fuel in a symbolic act of securitization. What if the proof of work for coin were based on something good for the world rather than aiming so directly for ecological self-destruction? But the part of the story that nobody's really talking about is the ending. What happens when all the Bitcoin is mined? Bitcoin transactions are authenticated by the thousands of people who dedicate their computers and electricity to building the blockchain. They're not donating all of this money and computing power. They're being paid in Bitcoin. Mining for Bitcoin and authenticating transactions is the same thing. What is the incentive for people to spend millions of dollars on computers and power once there's no more kickback of coin? I've asked this question of the world's leading blockchain investors, the miners, the scholars, and none of them have offered a satisfactory answer. The best they can come up with is, well, we'll figure it out when the time comes, or maybe we'll fork the blockchain into a few alternatives and see which one works. Now, how is that good enough justification for a combined quarter of a trillion dollar bet on cryptocurrencies? I spoke to CEOs of four different companies that have either just issued or are about to issue tokens, and none of them had ever even considered how the blockchain is administrated once the coin is all gone, or what that means to the future of their operations. So what will really happen when all the Bitcoin is mined? The people and companies currently authenticating transactions for coin will instead insist on service fees. The more processing power and electricity it takes to authenticate, the more money they'll want to be paid. So already financial institutions like banks and brokerage houses are rising to the occasion. They're lining up promoting their own blockchains as well as authentication services for those who want to keep using existing cryptocurrencies. So instead of disrupting and replacing the banking industry and its fees, Bitcoin and other blockchains simply feed into the banking monopolies once their coin is all mined. They don't disrupt banking, they reify it, only they do so through obscenely wasteful and unnecessary expenditure of processing power and computer hardware. Bitcoin may have meant to disintermediate the agents of trust who monopolized commerce and currency. Like the internet, it was meant to engender trust by connecting people directly to one another. But all it really did was substitute for trust in a new way with computer cycles instead of a human or institutional middleman. As such, it ended up less a way of promoting transactions and trade than the same old extraction and growth. 
So just as our computer screens became just another outlet for television, our blockchains will become just another instrument of the financial services industry. Welcome counterweight to the virtual speculation of the Bitcoin universe. Green Rabbit has been making real bread with real sun power for real people by real people. Uh, well, gosh, what, for the last decade, I guess. Suzanne Sloman, one of my favorite people and perhaps the greatest bread baker alive on the planet. If you don't believe me, eat a piece of her bread or have one of her pickles, she's been treating the earth, her bread, and the people who work with her really well and very humanely and consciously um, since she started. And I've been impressed with her story as she lives it for the way that she contends with each of the challenges. It's as if we live in a world where they're making it increasingly difficult to treat the soil properly, to make food properly, to engage with your employees as people rather than resources. And Suzanne is fighting this battle on all of these fronts at once. For me, there there was something uh, really affirming about uh, getting that first, I guess, email from you or, or you had supported the show and then I emailed you and you were like one of the first, like in the first few weeks. And then you told me about how, you know, that you all are like listening to the show at the bakery as you're making bread and in Vermont with solar power and organic things. And of course, <laughs> I mean, my whole romantic thing opened up the whole, you know, romantic vision of, of, but it was like, uh, beyond that, it reminded me of a, a feature I used to do on my, my old show, The Media Squad, called Real People Doing Real Things. And it was super important for me to do those because it was like they connected me and and the listeners to the real world. It wasn't just a bunch of, you know, intellectual sort of NPR type people talking about their next TED Talk. but you know, their, their fantasy, but rather, you know, real, real people actually doing something. And, uh, we try, I tried to interview you and then I screwed up really on my end with the technology and all, but here we are, I mean, a year into this stuff and, uh, I got to visit the bakery and see you. And, uh, I, I kind of want to, uh, make sure it just wasn't my avatar. Yeah, no, <laughs> I knew it wasn't an avatar. It sounded too real. But uh, there's, there's, I've had so many uh, learnings from from interacting with you, and even you know making some mistakes along the way, and trying to, I mean, always well intentioned, but um, in trying to figure out how do we, uh, how do we bring reality into you know the, the team human discussion. Um, so to start. For for those who don't know you, uh, uh, you know you're you're the the proprietor of uh, of uh, Green Rabbit Bread or Green Rabbit Bakery. Green Rabbit Bread. 
It's Green Rabbit. Um, yeah, Green Rabbit Bakery. It's mainly just Green Rabbit, but it's mostly bread that we produce, um, amongst other things. And even your your approach to bread, which is worth a book itself, uh, it was kind of shocking to me. You know, I live in the in Westchester, New York, where there's the anti gluten craze going on right now, and you know, people feel like that's you know, and I know there's real people who are allergic to gluten and all, but it's like become this thing. Like gluten is this is this enemy. And then you started telling me about sourdough. Can you explain? What sure. Sourdough, yeah. With, what sourdough? First, what sourdough is and what it does to gluten? Yes. So it's not just gluten. Um, we have sort of reduced, um, almost to a religious extent. All that's negative in food to gluten. I mean, you visit a doctor, you visit a naturopath, and one of the first things they want to do to solve any number of problems is eliminate gluten from your diet. So gluten itself is not the problem. It's the way that we process grains that contain gluten. The human body, the gut specifically, wasn't never meant to process just Basically, grains that have been quickly mixed with water, um, given a dose of basically crack, meaning commercial yeast, um, mm-hmm. thrown in a mixer, and then given some heat. And what that gives you is just a fake, I mean, it, it's not a fake food product, but it's fake nutrition. And it's actually negative nutrition. It's bad for you. And it doesn't even provide you with anything other than energy, which would be the starch and the sugars. Grains relative to most digestive systems, animals and humans, should be fermented prior to ingestion. Otherwise, it's just way too much work on our digestive systems. And fermented means like what? Like like you do to cheese and wine and stuff? Yes. And fermentation, so you've got a whole bunch of microorganisms going into the dough of a sourdough loaf of bread. You've got wild yeasts which again are very different from commercial strains of of yeast. A commercial strain of yeast is basically raised on a diet of molasses, sugar. So again, it's literally, it's like, it's like crack. It's like yeast. It's like a leavening organism that's just been fed a diet of sugar. Wild yeasts are, you know, they exist everywhere. They exist on your hands. They exist on your counter. They, they feed on starch, which would be a grain and, like most living things, they need hydration, meaning water. In addition to the wild yeast in a sourdough dough, you have other microorganisms, meaning bacteria. Now, bacteria are absent in a dough that's leavened just with a commercial strain of yeast. So you have this whole, you know, again, and I'm speaking a little bit in layperson's terms and a little bit in observational science because otherwise it just gets way too technical. But you have basically this dough that contains wild yeast, it contains bacteria, and you need certain conditions for fermentation to happen. So first of all, you need food, the food being the grain, um, and then, and the water. So you need food and beverage, and then you need the right environment, meaning temperature and enough time for all of these microorganisms to digest their meal. Um, again, in layperson's terms. So if you, once that fermentation starts happening, you have byproducts. I believe that 
the byproduct of the fermentation of the yeast, it's going to be CO2, it's going to be energy, and it's going to be ethanol. You've got the byproduct of fermentation of the bacteria, which is also CO2 and energy, but that's where you're getting your acids. Another byproduct would be this whole combination of acids. Um, The main ones or most common would be acetic, lactic, propionic, and then some other ones. So you are sort of creating this environment where, again, fermentation can happen. When that doesn't happen during the process of making a loaf of bread, it's you're basically end up putting something into your gut, into your mouth, into your gut that your body just doesn't know how to react to. There's nothing good about it. And then when you get to the whole concept of whole grains, you know, which is kind of the other buzzword, there's a whole other side to it, which is that without fermentation of a whole grain, your body can't even absorb the micronutrients, which is the reason why you chose to eat that whole grain loaf of bread as opposed to the the wonder bread. Me- so essentially there's these there's these like molecules in the wheat or in the flour. And you're saying that they're, that they're kind of they gotta be they have to be treated. They have to be changed or softened or fermented in order for our bodies to be able to use them. Well, yes, that's one aspect, but then there's also live organisms that have to be fed. And in that feeding process, fermentation happens and the byproducts of fermentation, again, either render minerals and micronutrients available in your body that is coming from that food. And they also, the existence of those acids, it makes for a much longer shelf life of a loaf of bread. So here, let's go back to gluten for a second. So wheat and rye are basically the basis of our cereal grains. They used to be the basis of our diet. Um, They weren't evil. You know, they weren't the cause of all negative health, um, which is now with the media and, you know, stores and marketing. Right. They're saying that we were, we were happy hunter gatherers eating berries and And, and gaining squirrels. a fair amount of nutrition from grain that had been fermented and either turned into bread, which is probably the most digestible and palatable form of fermented grain. Um, another form might be beer. And, you know, or you could have just simply hydrated and simmered your grains, which would have essentially ended up in sprouting, which would be healthier than just eating them dry and certainly more digestible, but still less healthful than having gone through the full range of fermentation. But the paleo kind of people will say that, you know, it was agriculture was a wrong turn in itself, that we should just be out there gathering things. And that once we started to grow stuff like grain, now we were starting to eat food that wasn't meant for people. Sure. Well, first of all, most people on a paleo diet are going to the supermarket and buying what they eat. Um, So that didn't get, that wasn't gathered from, you know, the forests and streams that was raised. Um, So if they truly believe that, then they need to get themselves a little plot of land and, you know, really provide themselves with everything and, you know, go right. hunting for the gotta, forest. We gotta, exactly. And we got to vastly reduce the population of the planet. Right. So people can and go I, I agree with that statement. That statement is 100% true that 
the concept of sustainable agriculture is a bit of an oxymoron. Agriculture essentially is not sustainable in and of itself unless you can do it on a scale and for a population scale that you're not depleting your resources faster than you're using them. I mean, but again, that sort of basic formula that could be applied to energy and, you know, anything, any resources that we use to survive. Instead, what you're doing is almost looking for or finding a sweet spot between that and like Wonder Bread, you know, sure. <laughs> which is just big agri crap. So you're yeah. basically telling us that that the Wonder Bread style of bread that most people eat, and even the brown versions right. of these things, are not really are not truly fermented, balanced foods. They're undigestible starch. They're basically yeah, they're starchy pump. sponge that is going to enter your body, make you feel bloated, and provide you with essentially nothing but you know, energy via the starch and sugars. Even a brown bread, like you say, like the brown version of Wonder Bread or Entenmann's or any, you know, big corporate bakery is generally gaining that brownness through molasses and sugars. Again, it's a very, very fast process. They can go start to finish, mixer to oven to plastic bags, you know, probably in two and a half hours and, you know, multiply that by, I don't know how many loaves they could produce in a factory with almost no human labor. Whereas a loaf of bread that we're producing, it's literally a 24 hour process of fermentation and baking. And it's actually longer than that because it's basically a lifelong continuum of this sourdough starter, which is the slurry that basically gives life to every loaf of bread we bake. So you've got like this little colony of creatures that you're taking care of. Yes, exactly. I have this little, so for example, um, right now um, I'm not in the bakery today because we're on a little bit of a reduced winter schedule right now. But knowing that we are going to have to mix dough to make, you know, 200, somewhere between 200 and 300 units tomorrow, I am staring at a little pint container that I fed this morning. Um, and it is, let's say, maybe half full. Okay, so I started out with 15 grams of my starter culture, which is sort of this ongoing, um, I always keep a bit of the culture because that is essentially the key to our business. It's ridiculous. Like basically this little jar of slurry Play-Doh is if I, if somehow I lose that, I have no business. <laughs> you know, like, uh. like most people, if their bank account is drained, they have no business. Me, if I have this, I'm pretty much out of business right. for a, a month. <laughs> It's like it's quite literally your corporate culture. It's <laughs> <laughs> a funny way of putting it. Um, so anyway, so right now I'm staring at, I took 15 grams of my culture. And within that culture, again, were all these wild yeasts and bacteria that hadn't been fed since last night. And they were hungry for breakfast. So I fed them, you know, give or take 75 grams of water and 75 grams of of flour. Now, since I'm not baking with it today, I'm just sort of keeping it alive and healthy. I did not add whole grain flour, which on bake day, I would feed it a portion of rye as well as um, uh -huh. as the wheat flour. So, and when I say wheat flour, I mean a, 
a white wheat flour just to keep it sort of healthy and not too active. How do you know when it's like, when it's hungry? Okay, so um, <laughs> I've gotten to know my little friends very well. Um, they, so when they start to collapse, they sort of go through, they go through a cycle. And again, the, the speed at which that cycle happens, and let's call it digestion, the speed at which digestion or fermentation happens is determined by ambient temperature. So right now it's pretty cold. We live in a little house heated by a wood stove. I have it, you know, maybe 20 feet from a wood stove. So it's probably at about 68 degrees. So I know on a diet of, you know, organic white flour and water, that was, it's, you know, kind of low quality breakfast this morning. It's going to take, it can go till about five or six tonight at that temperature. If I were to raise the ambient temperature of my home, um, if it were summertime or if I cranked the wood stove, it would be, you know, maybe 80 degrees in here. And likely it would be hungry by three o'clock. That said, if I didn't want to feed it again, knowing that dinner time was going to take place at six o'clock, I could put it in the fridge and slow it down because the fridge would be closer to, you know, 34 degrees, which would bring the temperature of that whole colony down and slow down the fermentation and slow down the acid production. But how do you know? Um, So it reaches a point where, you know, it starts out as this lifeless slurry after being fed. And it can stay that way for a few hours. And then, especially if there's no whole grain flour being fed to it, then it's slowly, you start seeing little bubbles. Um, And then it expands and it expands and it, you know, might go from anywhere to a third or double in its size. Now, you, at that point, you're reaching sort of the end of its its digestion or fermentation cycle where it's going to run out of energy and it's going to start collapsing on itself. Because basically what happens with yeasts and bacteria is they reproduce. They run out of food. You know, they're all fighting for what's left. And mm-hmm. um, they're going to stop producing all of those byproducts. And mostly what's going to be produced, the the acid is going to be out of balance. So you're going to have way too much acid and far too little of everything else. And you'll see it kind of collapse on itself because that, um, that, you know, here we go, the gluten network, um, the buzzwords is going to, the gas within it that's trapped within it is going to start collapsing because it needs more energy um, to continue the process. And again, you know, I have to say the disclaimer that I'm sort of combining science and uh, colloquial explanations right. there. Um, but then, so if you go if you go on vacation, then someone's got to come feed your your culture. Yeah. So in that scenario, I would put it in the refrigerator. I would get it super. I would get it really in shape, and then I could likely leave it for four or five days, assuming I had three days of feeding before I had to use it to leaven a large batch of bread. Right. And there have certainly been times where like in the summer, if I only have, you know, 36 hours, you know, of time off between the last bake shift and the next bake shift, I'll take it with me and feed it wherever I go. The problem is, you know, obviously the TSA doesn't let you take it on an airplane. So you can't, you're limited in the type of travel you can do with your companion starter. Right. So this whole, this, so the, the keeping this, this living culture, uh, you know, nursing it and feeding it and all as the sort of the central almost hearth of the, 
of the business. It's a little bit like, you know, Piggy and Lord of the Flies keeping the fire going. You've got to keep this thing Absolutely. alive. So there's continuity in this. It's just, it's just one of many, you know, high touch, time consuming uh, activities that goes into making real, healthy, uh, 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 human compatible uh, bread compared to uh, whatever this kind of poison corporate soft bread, rapidly produced crap yeah. is. So one, it's going to be, it's got to be way more expensive than. It's incredibly management bread. intensive. Generally, we're using flour. So I haven't checked commodity prices in a long time. Um, and it's hard to find, you know, going rates for organic, but, you know, maybe a year ago, I saw that you could buy a bag of enriched, bleached, you know, probably ADM, Archer Daniel Midland flour, white flour, probably for $11. And that was like at Walmart. So if you were buying a pallet of it, you know, you could probably get it for far less. And that's a right. 50 pound bag. So I am currently paying $34. Um, but that's, let, let's, that's okay. Because four years ago, when there was sort of this perfect storm of high demand for organic grain, um, low production and crop failure between Canada and the Plains, I was looking at $60 for a 50 pound mm. bag of organic flour. And it couldn't even be so for the first time, the mill that I've always bought from was sourcing from Argentina. Yeah. So if you want to look at my business and say it's, you know, this kind of paradigm of, of, you know, responsible business, the linchpin for me is that I do have trouble sourcing wheat from a nearby region. I'm still getting, most of my wheat is being grown in the Plains States, which I don't feel terribly bad about. There is some wheat being grown in Canada. A lot of, you know, the whole next step in the science is the milling. And you want to make sure your mill knows what you're doing, what they're doing, especially if you're not relying on commercial yeast to leaven your bread, because it all comes yeah. down to the quality of the flour and the quality of what's happening to grain in the milling process. So I am able to get rye cornmeal and oats regionally. But thus far in my career, I've had a hard time getting wheat from the Northeast. There's also another big bakery in our region when there happens to be a successful wheat crop by the few farmers who are trying to grow it. Um, they seem to have like, they get priority and they snatch it all up. Mm -hmm. So, but then you you make up for the uh, uh, whatever you know your your carbon offset right. on the on Argentine and uh, uh, wheat is more than made up for in the fact that you power your ovens with solar panels. Sure, sure. Um, and again, the Argentina that was just one year where mills were either going to have to source internationally or shut down, and that's no longer the case. We're back to using you know Oklahoma. Um, grown North Dakota grown grain. Um, so, yeah. But things yeah. like solar, the solar power, that's not just a, a marketing gimmick. No, not at all. Not at all. We have, um, we basically installed a solar array, which was a huge, huge decision on our part to um, run what are called electro deck ovens, which are electric. And this is a big piece of equipment. So it does take a fair amount of electricity, which we didn't feel right about unless we were able to kind of, you know, produce some of that ourselves. 
also knowing that we had an excellent location to be able to do that. And we were able to sort of get in on the incentive programs um, before they ran out, which was about two years ago or a year and a half ago. So we, we were able to get some tax credits, which we've used up. And um, it basically what it comes out to is we are, it was kind of an equal, financially, it was sort of an equal trade-off. If we hadn't installed the solar, um, the cost of running our electric per month would basically be, is basically equal to, you know, an installment for the uh, solar array at the lowest down payment. So it was a big decision at the time, but definitely the right decision. Um, We realized fairly quickly. Last year, so this will be our first full year having gone through with the array and it didn't quite power enough to take us through. Um, we've run out of credits now, but the previous year, which was a much sunnier spring and summer, Ashley took us all the way through March on credits. Um, and right. now we're getting back into longer degree days. So we are you know, starting to produce more again. So yeah, we've made, we've made decisions that certainly might make us less in the end, but make us feel better about what we're doing. So here you are doing this process that takes a zillion times longer and more intensive and more uh, than 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 what uh, you know big agra or or corporate bread people do. I mean, I guess first off, why why can't you know General Foods or someone come and look and say, oh, look at what Suzanne's doing here. This is like way better bread. It's gooder for the world. It's better for the belly. Let's just let's just do this at scale. I mean, <laughs> can can what you're doing happen at scale? Can they just build giant factories with real with real uh, 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 you know real cultures and and I think that they could, and there there actually is even machinery like they have. Um, you know, obviously we feed our starter by hand. We do it in we sort of divide it into three buckets so it's manageable to mix. Um, But there are, you know, large pieces of equipment that could be purchased that will, you know, feed a large, very large portion of, you know, starter on time increments and really kind of eliminate the human aspect, which is mostly what these companies do. Um, So could they... Practically speaking, yes, they could. Economically, could they do that with, you know, the shareholders looking for profits, breathing down their necks? I don't think so. And not under our current structure of what people expect food to cost. Right. So what's a loaf of bread from from Green Rabbit? What's a, a good loaf of bread cost? Okay, so our basic... Wheat and rye, what we call just our basic Levon, is we wholesale it for $4. So probably most retail markup is going to be maybe anywhere between 5 and 5.39, I guess. But here's, here's, the, here's the other challenge. So the larger the store, meaning even like your local food co-op that, you know, markets itself on being really good to everybody. Um, yeah. If our bread doesn't sell, we buy it back. It's a guaranteed sale. So essentially they have zero risk. So they don't need to give their typical, you know, 45% markup on the item because if it doesn't sell, what, what does it matter to them? I'm the one who takes the loss. 
Uh, is that the way it is in the grocery store for for commercial bread people it too? It probably is. Um, so we have, huh. you know, we have a few larger stores. Um, the larger stores, we have to play that game. When I was much smaller, I just didn't go to those stores and said I never would. But, you know, as we grew a bit, I realized that I kind of had to. So we have a few stores that we do that with and we we play the game and we just, and it creates this whole other level of management, you know, meaning like we have to know exactly how much bread we sent yesterday and how much bread we bought back to determine how much to send tomorrow and how much did we send on that day last year and what was the weather like on that day, you know, because we live in a sea right. valley. And, and it's so like- you'd a, rather, and you'd rather sell- You'd rather get sold out and leave a few customers unsatisfied. Exactly. And this is actually a bone of contention right between myself and my partner, um, who more manages like the deliveries and the, you know, the that logistical side because he always wants to keep in order to compete in the marketplace, he would much rather see, you know, a few loaves, you know, late in the day or even the next morning before we make our next delivery and pick up because he doesn't want the shelf empty. I, on the other hand, who am touching every loaf of bread, you know, and my heart and soul goes into it, is more coming from the the theory of screw it. If they don't get it, they don't get it. At least I didn't buy it back, you know. Um, so you know, right? Because then it's like one of your children hasn't been eaten. Exactly. You know? And then what do I do with it? You know, yeah. So I give it to the, you know, the supermarket workers, you know, but I'm not big enough really to rate it off. And we, you know, some of it, if, if we end up with, with a bunch, which we really don't, cause we manage it so closely, you know, we donate it to community suppers at churches or temples and things like that. But, um, and once in a while we'll find a restaurant account that will take it at half price and use it, you know, for pressed, you know, hot sandwiches. Um, right. and the thing about our bread is it's actually still fan. It's still better than most fresh bread the next day. <laughs> because it's right. holding power is, is so is it just holds so well um because right. of the hydration and the and the sourdough process so um we again we don't do that with the smaller stores we just simply tell them we can't and if you can't live with that then you know we understand but you know that's we're not selling you enough to take that risk um right and at the same time now it's not it this business is not just you and your partner anymore you've got Actual employees I that do. you have to pay have and keep alive exactly. and all that. I have two employees. You know, that's a challenge. Right now, I have um, two really great employees. Um, and one's been with me for almost five years. And um, he's interesting. He is a recovering addict. And so when he first started working for me, it was really uh, you know, for lack of a better word, it was sketchy. You know, he, he was unwell a lot of the time and we started just a couple hours a day and sometimes I'd pick him up or sometimes I'd lend him my car to get to the clinic. And, and, you know, over the course of now five years later, he's, uh, making a livable wage. He's running deliveries in one direction twice a week in my car. He's, um, you know, he helps us divide on the bench. He's an integral part of the team. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it can be hard as an employer in that position because there's still there's still challenges associated with that. But, you know, if he wants it, he's got a job with me for life. And then I've got another young woman who is now at a full year with me um, and she's just exceptional. And, you know, actually, just before we got on the phone, I was looking at my numbers, um, you know, from last year to this year, because it's that kind of that time of year. And uh, I have to say, at this point, I am a little worried about how much we're spending on payroll. Uh, 
<laughs> given the size of our business. Um, and, you know, if you, you know, if you just Google how much, you know, what percentage of your growth should payroll be, you know, they're going to tell you anywhere from 10, 20, maybe 30% if you're in the food business. Uh-huh. Um, you know, last year I was lower because I went through a period of time where my employee had quit my baker and I was doing things myself. Um, but right now, simply just based on last month, I'm closer to 40. Hmm. But what I can tell you is that there's no way to treat people fairly below that. <laughs> so right. um, not in a small business that's also taking on all these other responsibilities rather than, you know, as you would put it, externalizing the cost to, you know, local local or federal municipalities. Um, right. Or the welfare state or something. So you they, they get health from you? And, no, and, they don't get and, health and- from us. What we have... Um, that's basically impossible for us to provide. Um, it's almost impossible for me to provide myself at this point. Um, but they, what we have said, told them is that, you know, if something comes up and that we will pay 50% of your deductible to help you, you know, take care of a health issue. You know, because most people are on higher deductible plans and um, just hoping that nothing happens, you know, that they don't need MRIs. And so that's basically what we've said to them. Um, And then, uh, you know, this other fellow that I've mentioned, we, you know, we've helped him since my partner was a nurse. He has helped him, you know, like fight his battles with, you know, with Medicaid and with the recovery clinic and, you know, with the hospitals and things like that. You know, one of our big challenges that came up last year, we were looking into uh, the possibilities of buying short-term disability plans so that if, you know, somebody wanted to take pregnancy leave or or whatnot, um, you know, we could continue to pay them. That was completely unavailable to small businesses. Um, but so then, you know, finding out that we couldn't go there, we looked into several other um, insurance carriers and options and nothing. Nobody would take us on. So we wrote up a plan and basically, you know, presented it to the young woman who worked for us and said, you know, when and should this happen, you know, for you, we'd like to keep you. And, you know, if you work for us for two years, we'll pay you 60% out of our own pocket of your salary for, you know, six weeks. And should you work for us for five years, we'll pay you 80%. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll just eat that cost. Um, I actually wrote immediately tried to contact our senator's office, but um, never had the opportunity to have a, a, you know, successful conversation with anyone about the issue. Um, You know, we also give sick days. We actually give, we're probably going to pay, we we give paid vacation um, because otherwise, basically we run a business that if I need a vacation, we kind of have to shut down because, you know, I'm a key member of the team. and occasionally I need a vacation. So, and we know that workers need to be paid and it's really not worth trying to get on unemployment for a week, you know? So we've just decided we're going to pay them. Um, I mean, it's interesting to me that the, the kind of the, the, the processes and priorities through which you manage your, your bread are 
to me, analogous or congruent with their processes and processes through which you try to manage the business, through which you try to manage the the and support the people who are who are working for you. In other words, your workers, your culture, your I mean, your bacterial, you know, and culture, and and your customers are are, are all meant to be beneficiaries of this uh, of this business of this process. But the the obstacles you encounter seem to almost be the same kinds of obstacles it, that, that it's as if our society and our economy and our expectations are just not built around a, an appropriately functioning farm or business or bakery that you're just pushing up against it at every, uh, you know what I mean? And in, in, on every level. Yeah. It, it's definitely like banging your head against a brick wall. And there's moments, like I really appreciate what you just said. And I think when I first wrote to you, it was because I had read Throwing Rocks at the Google bus and came out of that read thinking, oh my God, I'm doing something right. I'm, I, I, I'm something, I'm not nothing. Like I always looked <laughs> at my, my, my tiny little business in this world as, as, such a nothing, you know, but I was trying so hard and, and working so hard. And I, I thought that there was something more going on there. But, you know, when you started talking about kind of, you know, the family business scale, and the family business culture and, and code of, of ethics, you know, I was like, that's, that's what we're doing. And all of a sudden, I felt like, okay, I, I'm doing something right. Um, and it's worth it. But I don't always feel that way. <laughs> a lot of the time I feel like, you know, I, I spend hours trying to figure out, okay, how can we change the business plan so we're not absolutely killing ourselves physically? You know, and literally, I know a lot of people stretch their work days. Um, it's for exaggeration, but we work, once we hit the work week, we go 13 hour days, no, nonstop. Mm. Um, that's, that's how a bakery rolls. Um, you know, at least I go 13 hour days, probably, um, you know, Cam's more on an eight hour day and Clara's, you know, 11 or 12, depending on the time of year. And, um, mm. you know, obviously we pay overtime if that comes to happen. We try to keep everybody on 40 weeks so they don't, you know, burn out and they have time to rest physically. Actually, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to have our local physical therapist office come in and watch everybody work so they can, um, you know, help them to take care of themselves better. And I was like, who does that? I exactly, mean, exactly who does that? But, <laughs> I mean, some of it is selfish. Some of it is me wanting to keep the crew that I have and knowing how difficult that is because, you know, especially when people are young, they move on. And, um, but yeah, people don't do that. I mean, I worked in the food industry, you know, I've been working in the food industry for 20, almost 25 years. And, I was treated like uh, I was treated like I meant nothing and I was completely disposable up until the time I was 45. I mean or no, sorry, 40. Mm. You know, even running kitchens, even being in charge, I was denied overtime. I was never given a salary. I was never given paid vacation. You know, you clocked in, you clocked out, you got nothing. Maybe if there was some nice cut of steak left over before, you know, the weekend closed, they let you bring it home. But, you know, that was your benefits. And it, it shouldn't be like that. People work really hard. Um, you know, and my feeling is that it doesn't matter if you're the one doing the dishes, you know, or mopping the floors or driving the truck. That's an integral part of our business. 
So maybe you aren't paid quite as much as the person who's running the mixer and shaping the bread, but you're still paid a livable wage because without you, it's still a complete break in the link. Like, you know, a, 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 it's a break in the chain of, of what it takes to make, you know, the daily business run. Um, but again, most people in the food business certainly don't, don't look at things like that. You know, and then as far as small farms, there are some smaller farms that are now starting to pay people, you know, $15, $16, $17 an hour. But keep in mind that those are mostly seasonal jobs and you're not getting paid sick days and, you know, vacation and things like that. Bruno, the problem in the food business is that subsidies go to massive farms that are basically growing three crops corn, soy, and maybe some wheat. And, and they get the subsidies because they've got the biggest lobbies to ask for them. They get the subsidies for any number of reasons. They, yes, I mean, that's definitely true. They get the subsidies, you know, back in the day of ethanol, they get the subsidies because they're growing corn, you know, but the bottom line is we have a glut of corn and that's why every piece of livestock is put in a concrete building and for a concrete lot and fed corn. You know, what else are we going to do with all that corn? Honestly, the way I see it, and I might be totally wrong, this is just a hypothesis, is that it's a way of keeping the economy going. And it's the only way they know how to do it. It's like, why do we continue to invest in in fossil fuel and fracking? Because right now that keeps money being invested and they don't know how to do it any other way. But Well, the other question is whether can we feed the world the other way? In other words, could we, would it work? for all the farms to be run uh, farms and bakeries and food processing to be done the way that you're doing it? I think there's a happy medium. It's very difficult both physically and economically to be at a scale where you can't, you know, get certain pieces of equipment and where you can't justify hiring people. So what I've seen, I think what's most common is that, People stay smaller rather than crossing that line to have two employees. So if the barriers on the challenges were removed, people might actually say, okay, I'll grow my business a little bit because hiring somebody isn't going to cost me an arm and a leg. It's just going to cost me what I'm paying that person. But it's then you throw on like payroll liabilities, you know, FICA and social security. And that doesn't really make sense. It's kind of, it's it's regressive. It, I guess right. in my mind is regressive. <laughs> you know, it's because the more you pay someone within a certain window, the more you're helping the government not pay for them through social programs. So why do you why do your liabilities increase the more you pay somebody? It should be the opposite. If you're going to pay somebody a crappy wage, you should kind of be penalized for that. Um, but, but back to the initial point was that if you're super small and you can't afford, you know, the barrel washer, if you're growing roots, um, or you can't afford the, the wheat, the weeding implement for your tractor so that, you know, the three people aren't on their hands and legs every single, you know, twice a week weeding through the rows, then you're in trouble. And that's a pretty, I don't think that's a sustainable way of growing food to feed large numbers of people. Um, So I think there, yeah, I think the subsidy program, you know, people say get rid of subsidies, but I feel like it should more 
be reallocate the subsidies. You know, have a set of criteria that you're meeting that's responsible, and then you get subsidies. Right, because the problem is now the subsidies are going to your competitors, really. To they're going to those who are doing the wrong processes, further advantaging them over those who are doing processes appropriately. Right, and it's all vertically integrated. So the who's reaping the benefits of of agricultural subsidies? It's Archer Daniel Midland and Cargill. You know, yeah. um, and obviously, you know, Monsanto on the other side and probably soon to be Dow. What did I just read from like 2006 to 2014? The price of corn, I think, has the corn seed has doubled for farmers. You know, that's absurd. We have so much yeah. corn. We have so I mean, the amount of corn we grow is just, it's, it's vile and corn is, you know, it's a row crop. It's not something that can grow, be grown perennially. We don't, generally speaking, on that large, on that corporate agriculture scale, you know, people aren't rotating. They're not, say, growing alfalfa in a field for three years and then growing one year of corn or, or vice versa. So they're not replenishing the piece of land um, by any stretch. They're just growing corn, corn, corn. And in order to do that, it's all based on petroleum-based inputs that you're buying from companies like Monsanto and soon to be Dow. Right, which then gets us to the big, almost the existential question. Our, our topsoil, you know, by, by most of the current estimates I read in, in the good magazines, is like, you know, 50, 60 years and we run out of topsoil at the current rate of, of exploitation. Uh, because we're not running uh, agriculture in a renewable fashion. I mean, is there are there ways to to reverse that? You know, the the some of the permaculture people I speak to make it sound really easy. Oh, well, you just do this, rotate that and put the water over here instead of there and we could we can reverse the whole topsoil depletion problem and I'll be happy. I mean, from from your understanding of it as and I understand you're not a a, you know, full scale organic farmer. You've got your little, you know, farm areas, but how, how hard is it to maintain topsoil rather than kill it? Um, as somebody growing food and certainly as somebody growing food, who's committed to, you know, whether you organic or biodynamic or responsible principles, it, it's your responsibility. It is difficult. It's more difficult on some tracts of land and some soil types than others. You know, if you're, if you're basically in, on a valley floor and you're sandy, it's going to be very hard to build that up without taking it out of production for a significant amount of time. You can do things to keep it reasonably fertile and I mean, fertile enough to grow certain crops. But if you really want to take those 20 acres and build them up you would need to take them out of production and probably tillage for quite a while. But can stuff be restored like that? In other words, if you've got, uh, you know, you, you go to one of these uh, uh, places that, you know, Dow or some big agro place just yeah. like, used it up and grew their corn or their alfalfa, whatever they grew year after year after year. And now the soil is just like, ugh, you know, nutrientless, that there's no more I mean, now the soil is no longer a matrix of mycelium communicating to one another and providing love and comfort to plants, but it's just like dirt, you know, it's just dead dirt sitting there. I mean, can we fix that 
or or do you just like leave it and grow somewhere else? I think you can fix it. I think it would take a massive a massive infusion of money. It would take committing to taking huge tracts of land out of crop production. And right now we don't have Again, we just we don't have municipalities who are going to do that. Well, because they're going to lose all this money in the short term, right? Unless someone's subsidizing it, right. it's like I gotta grow. It's just like the guys, you know, uh, uh, I, I've spoken to out, you know, in, in, in Pittsburgh and Ohio. It's like there's coal under the ground. Mm-hmm. I can dig this up and make some money, not good money, but some money. Mm-hmm. And you want me to like do a contract with one of Hillary Al Gore's? you know, solar panel companies, give me a break. Let me just do this. I mean, and that's the same way someone, even if they're, they're, they're basically sharecropping for some industrial, uh, mega farm, it's like, at least they could get another few seasons out of this stuff before it's gone. Right. And they owe so much money that I don't think they see, they're basically indentured before we actually ever bought our first farm in central New York. Um, my ex-husband and I went to briefly work on a farm in Pennsylvania and, I remember one of the first like sit downs with all the workers where the farmer, you know, the older farmer was trying to teach us some, some knowledge. And, you know, the first lecture was on debt is your friend, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like as a farmer, debt is your friend and debt is not anybody's friend except for the major financial institutions and the U S government, you know, it's, it's not your friend. And because it forces you to take a piece of land that will be better rested and and rehabilitated and push it and push it and push it and the only way you can push it to produce anything is to buy the inputs and the inputs can get more expensive because we now have no competition in those corporations and i kept saying dow but you know monsanto is going to merge with bear and then there's going to be Farmers are just at the whim of whatever people are going to charge them so do i yeah this has sort of been what we keep going back and forth on Theoretically, is it possible to rehabilitate land? Yes, I agree with that. Practically speaking, is it possible to feed the planet, especially as the population keeps growing and we're not reining in any of these these negative practices? I don't think so. I, I really don't. And the only way that I can see a change is to truly, truly localize food production. So you are small, growing on small, you know, either everybody has a garden, which I realize at this point isn't going to happen because people don't have the knowledge or the space mm-hmm. in most contexts, or to go back to the actual CSA model, which isn't what CSAs now are now. CSAs at this point are subscription programs. Yeah. It's like buying a subscription to a magazine, not to say that's bad, but it's not, it's not community supported agriculture. Community supported agriculture was a way to take care of a piece of land in a given locale and feed a certain number of people off the resources available. Right. And to now employ, it's a and to to employ some, in somebody, right. somebody with the knowledge to do that. Right. Now it's a subscription to some guy who's, you know, three, four hours away driving down in his truck and selling at a farmer's market, you know, which is a different thing. It's more Wait, of a it's retail. It's not good or bad, but it's not, right. it's not localized. It's not a localization of 
the base of meeting the basic need of sustenance for a given right. region. Right. Which is the which is the the kind of the ideal that we're that right. we're so, you know, for. if New Jersey, you know, I mean, the Garden State, Long Island, you know, was basically potato growers, you know, you could have, if we hadn't developed all that land, the massive population of New York City and the five boroughs could probably be fed off of New Jersey and Long Island if farming, if people still knew the craft and trade of farming, and if they could make enough money as farmers. And if they could make enough money to buy tools and have access to the things they need to farm responsibly, right? But then there's the the kind of folks who who I've even had them on this on this show who say, "Look, that that we're not gonna we're not gonna reduce the population by so much. We're gonna be eight, ten, twelve, you know, before before this thing stops, if it even does. And the only way out." is through, you know, that we need to partner with the more well-meaning people at a Monsanto or a Dow in order to figure out how do we grow spirulina on the Indian Ocean or, you know, or alfalfa on Mars uh, in, order to, in order to feed these people, that there's new, you know, you do genetic engineering, use nanotech to go into that soil and turn it back into something else. It just seems like there's a much simpler path. I mean, stop growing so much corn, rehabilitate some of the land. You know, everybody says eat less meat, eat less meat. I totally agree with eat less meat. As far as don't eat meat, I don't agree with that unless you live, you know, in Northern California or the tropics where all your nutritional needs can easily be met. In the North Country, it makes a lot of sense for us to eat meat. They're part of the farming system. They're part of the, the replenishing system of of the lambs, you know, that that process we're talking about. Right. Well there's a difference between cows living on your farm and exactly. you know, field than sitting in a giant, you know, with those little, you know, the, the feedlot. Yeah. Whatever those Eating are. Nothing yeah, but a corn. Feedlot. yeah. When you eat when you right. eat conventional beef now, you're eating corn. When you eat conventional chicken now, you're eating corn. When you eat conventional pork you're eating corn and probably the cardboard from unsold frozen pizza boxes. I mean, <laughs> it's it, it's so, again, that has to do with subsidies. It has to do with the overproduction of corn. It has to do with completely misguiding people into the ethanol boom, which we knew was a failed start before they pushed people into it. We knew that the cost of producing corn to make energy was more than what you could yield from it. And why? I guess I think it was more, I think the reason is your initial statement that these corporations have too much lobbying power. So, and they can make too much money on, you know, having farmers grow corn and using expensive equipment to do it. So, yeah, the, the way to do it would be smaller farms, small to mid-sized farms, or, you know, homestead gardens. Mm. Um, I wish it would happen because, honestly, I, I, I mean, this is a whole nother topic, but I think our society is kind of in a mass melancholy. And my personal theory is that has to do with most people being thoroughly removed from taking part in any form of meeting their basic needs. Um, cause there's a huge amount of satisfaction to be gained from that. Yeah. It is interesting. I mean, when I, when I went to the farm or, and, and saw, saw, you know, you and your gorgeous partner and gorgeous land and 
beautiful bakery and the high windows and the oven and the flour and the wooden pans and stuff. I mean, it's like, oh my God, this is so real. It's so heavenly. It's so utopian. And on the other hand, though, I think about how much you work, how early you get up, how cold it is outside when you're picking pickles or whatever you're doing there. Um, you know, I see it's fantasy to me picking. I know you can't. Pick pickles. <laughs> you have Not to, when it's cold out. But. Right. But they don't grow out of the ground like that. You pickle them or something. Um, it's both It's both more beautiful, but it, it, it seems to the outside, oh my God, I can't live like that. And I feel like most people who are struggling sadly on Prozac in the cities think that this is just too hard, too cold, that there's like going in outhouses or something. Yeah. No, it's it's not that. And um, it is brutal. Like I just left physical therapy last night and came home and said to, to John, <laughs> you know, we have to, we have to make a change. Like I'm approaching 50 and there's no way around the fact that I can't, I can't stand for 13 hours for the next eight years, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know what the answer is, but I do think part of the answer is reconnecting people with some form of meeting their basic needs, whether it's sewing a skirt in, in middle school or, you know, I grew up with home ec. It was mm. stupid, but, you know, it, it did connect you with something. It was stupid and it was fairly sexist, but it, it, it did connect you with something. You know, right, we, being we, right, doing a real thing turns you into more of a real person. You know, whether you're creating well, value it gives or you the ability to think about some skills that might be needed when the power goes out. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you want to think about it on a right. practical level, um, right? We don't need to get to zombie apocalypse to no, understand the power's that. Go yeah. out. I mean, we just made a huge decision to invest in a generator so that when you know we've been flying blind for five years up here without backup generators. And that means that, and this isn't a generator that can run our ovens, but it's a generator that keeps our refrigeration going and our freezers going. So we don't lose, you know, all the berries we grew and we don't lose everything that's in our refrigeration system. And maybe the power goes out for five hours and then it comes back on so we can keep our, our proofing room going. So we don't lose the bread for tomorrow. Should the power come back on? Um, so yeah, these are real things. We have more power outages now. We have bigger storms. Um, it's really helpful when somebody knows how to start a fire and to keep warm or make some soup over it. And right. you know, as silly as that sounds, most people don't know how to do that. Most people don't know how to. Most people don't know how to cook a chicken. I don't mean raise it well, and kill it. Human, right. Human beings have been removed from most systems. Right. I mean, when I when I hear you talk about you know safety in agriculture, about food security and sustainability, I mean, very often the solutions that you talk about are you need a human being to go there and look at the leaves of the plant to see how it's doing today. I mean, which <laughs> it seems really simple, but you got to find people to to do stuff, right? I mean, it's responsible production and responsible organic production requires more humans, doesn't it? But, but I remember you said to me back when you said something like uh, organic or, or organic farming or, or, or sustainable farming is really about, I think you said walking, walking your fields. Well, yeah. Observation. I mean, that's one of the first things you're taught, you know, walk your fields once a day and see what's going on. 
I mean, the beauty of it, everything being linked. I mean, the, the scary part is that everything's linked and it's all coming down. The beauty of it means that you can change it from anywhere in the system, that you can start almost anywhere. Start with health, start with wages, start with subsidies, start with the way you treat the soil, start with the way you treat your workers. You know, you can start anywhere and it unwinds the entire, the entire system. So I want to encourage everybody, um, go visit um, greenrabbitvt.com, which is the, the Green Rabbit's website, greenrabbitvt for vermont.com. Um, and if nothing else, see these gorgeous photographs of real bread, which just will make you realize, oh my God, that's what bread looks like. Yeah. I mean, it's it's I know it's hard work, but when you look at it in these pictures, it's like, oh my God, I just want to grow black currants. And of course, we're all waiting for the Green Rabbit cookbook, which I'm sure you're going to do, right? Um, yeah, I'm going to do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would love in your to. Spare I, don't, time. I don't think there's a lot to be made in cookbooks, but um, maybe no. someday. I would love to actually, Just what I'd like right to here. do is teach people to cook. Um, yeah. Like hands-on teach people to cook. Mm. Especially high school seniors so that when they move on in life, they, uh, they have a skill set to stay healthy. Yeah. And cooking, that's not this, like getting that thing from the frozen section and sticking it in the microwave. It turns out that's not cooking. No, that's heating. (laughs) That's heating. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, we'll figure it out. Cool. I mean, really, thank you so much for being on team human. You're, you're, uh, uh, you have so many different functions in this effort. I can't even list them all, but, um, you know, the, the, the willingness to engage and keep us honest and challenge what makes sense and, uh, what doesn't, um, is important and human. And, and if we, if we don't, if we're not comfortable making each other uncomfortable, then what the fuck, you know, (laughs) Yeah. what's happened? Then we're not alive. Then we're just, then we might as well just go down and just end it. Um, so uh, I really appreciate what you do and, and the way you relate to us and, and well, and, and thank you so much because, um, I spend a lot of time alone and it's good to be connected. So, um, to something that seems valuable and, um, as depth. So, I Yay, so we're doing that for each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for joining team human. Our guest today was Suzanne Sloman, founder of green rabbit. You can visit her online at greenrabbitvt.com. That's greenrabbitvt for vermont.com. We'll be back in the basement media squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peace. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.